Essential Oils, Modesty Culture, and Talking to the Dead. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. We open registration this week on Belong as the first conference slash event by the liturgist, and it's a safe place for us to get together and have conversations about science and faith and art and life and all the ways that those things are changing. You can find out more on my website, but for now, let's get it started. Hey, Science Mike, this is Ben. Um, my question is regarding the use of essential oils for medical purposes. Uh, I have a lot of people in my family, uh, specifically my mom and aunt and grandparents, uh, that have gotten into using these oils for different medical purposes, curing a headache, um, curing back pain. They'll rub it on their big toe or behind their ear, or put in a capillate and swallow it. Um, they say that it has all kinds of reliable effects. I've even used it and it's cured a headache. Um, but I was wondering how much of this is a placebo effect? Um, are there any scientific studies behind the reliability of the use of oils for medical purposes? I know the ancients used it for all kinds of different purposes. Uh, but I just wanted to hear what your thoughts were. Thank you so much for all the work that you do um, for this podcast and for the liturgists. You've helped me a lot um, growing in my faith and relating it to science and modernity. Uh, thanks for taking my question. One of my best friends in the world swears by essential oils, absolutely swears by them, gets other people to use them. So, and she's smart, <laughs> knows a lot about modern medicine. She's smarter than I am anyway as a person. Another one of my friends swears that essential oils stopped her husband from snoring. So we talk about the placebo effect, which is a psychological phenomenon Wherein, if you believe doing something will have some effect on your physicality or the way you feel, it measurably uh, will, <laughs> more than chance. So the placebo effect is a real thing, but the placebo effect certainly wouldn't apply to snoring, right? You're asleep. You don't have a psychological factor at play when you aren't conscious. You know, certainly a, a cured headache. I could give you a sugar pill and tell you that it's Tylenol. And there's a decent chance that your headache's going to go away. Or when your headache goes away naturally, you will ascribe it to that pill through something called confirmation bias. It still doesn't explain the snoring. Here's the thing. Anecdotes are not data. One person's personal account of a phenomenon does not validate the effect of something because of the placebo effect and confirmation bias among other things. That's the reason controlled, double-blind studies are essential to the sciences, especially medical science, because you're trying to eliminate as many extraneous factors as possible. That's how medical science works. Now, I noticed you mentioned the ancients. I do want to mention something about that. The ancients also drilled holes in people's skulls for headaches. So what the ancients did for medicine is not of any interest to me unless we've done some testing in modern medicine, okay? 
Now, essential oils in general are, are part of this homeopathic medical movement. And things generally live in homeopathy because they haven't been validated by medical trials. If they had been, they'd be normal medicine and regulated by the FDA much more tightly. Although, based on the explosion of things like essential oils, the FDA is examining the way that it handles non-traditional or alternative medicine. But let's talk specifically about essential oils. First of all, the research is very sparse. And what research there is, aromatherapists make claims about them that psychologists and neurobiologists reject. And further, even when we do see some measured phenomenon with essential oils, aromatherapists and psychologists and neurobiologists uh, disagree on the mechanism. In general, I don't trust aromatherapists to give me good science. I do trust neurobiologists and psychologists through the peer review process to create Good science. So here's what the science tells us, not the aromatherapists, uh, but the science tells us about essential oils. Number one, they smell great. I know that seems obvious, but it is true that things that smell good can alter your mood. Uh, We like to be surrounded by pleasant scents that does have a cognitive effect. It has an emotional effect, and those things are measurable. In fact, when essential oils were tested on cancer patients, they were found to have an effect on depression, on anxiety, and on stress levels. A positive effect. Here's the problem. So did synthetic oils, which uh, aromatherapists say aren't the same, and so did normal pleasant fragrances like lavender that weren't involved with oils at all. Things that smell good make us feel good, essential oils included. Now, what we're talking about here is is the ability to smell it. So behind your ear is kind of an odd spot <laughs> or on your toes or, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I definitely put that in the folk medicine category. But we do know that oil on your skin is a good moisturizer and can have a detergent quality. It can clean your skin and moisturize your skin which is one of the reasons the ancients would have been attracted to this. Uh, Oiled skin is is healthier skin within reasonable constraints. And in fact, some studies have shown a genuine antimicrobial or even antiviral effect to oils on the skin, including essential oils, including reduced propensity to transmit or uh, be infected by um, herpes virus. So... That's real. Now, the antimicrobial effect of essential oils uh, is less uh, than the antimicrobial effect of soap and warm water, but <laughs> but, but uh, certainly studies have validated that they can have a measurable, even significant antimicrobial effect. So basically, the science says that essential oils are good for your skin and that they smell good and that other claims about essential oils are dubious at best from a scientific perspective. Typically, if someone makes a claim like this that's medicinal, the way you validate it, the way you accept that it will work uh, projected across a larger population group and is not just confirmation bias or the placebo, is published medical studies. And so my response, typically, when someone tells me about the miracles of essential oils, is simply, show me the data. Our next question comes from the email inbox, and it reads, Science Mike, can I call you science for short? 
I guess, if you want to, sure. Uh, what's your take on modesty culture? What's the science to men's sex drives versus women's and the whole visually stimulated thing? On the other hand, I think that it's making a big deal over nothing. On the other, my eyes play ping pong when I'm at the beach and bikinis are everywhere. Help me figure out if I'm a visual creature. Okay. <laughs> Great question. Uh, common question. Let's talk about attraction for a second um, because it's complicated. The process by which you're attracted to something or not is a very complicated process. and It involves both cognitive and physiological factors. So cognitively, sort of what's happening in the emergent factors of your neurological makeup. Sexual arousal isn't entirely known, but we know that it involves an appraisal and an evaluation of the stimulus. The categorization of the stimulus is sexual and an effective response. And I'm quoting a paper that is linked on the show notes of AskScienceMike.com because that's a riveting sentence. <laughs> and I'll continue. The physiological components of sexual arousal include changes in cardiovascular function, respiration and genital response, erection in men, and vasocongestion in women. So you have things that you think about when you're attracted to someone, and you have things that happen with your body, and those correlate or they don't, and the end result is you feeling attracted to someone, okay? So what does that mean for the purported visual differences in the genders? Well, studies have shown that men are, in fact, more visually aroused at a cognitive level, but also more selective about what arouses them. So men are typically most aroused by images of a man and a woman in sexual, or heterosexual men anyway, are aroused by pictures of men and women having sex. Uh, women are less gender selective. So even if their preferred gender is not on the media, they still exhibit arousal. Men much more tied to their chosen gender. Men also tend to appreciate images that incorporate some form of objectification to both genders, uh, whereas women prefer media that allows them to project themselves into the scene. At the physiological level, men and women show remarkably similar responses. So to even to media that women report themselves as not being stimulated by, their physiological responses show arousal. So there's a bigger disconnect between women's self-reporting arousal and men's self-reporting arousal. And researchers think that that's probably socially driven. That's socially, social conditioning. Basically, women are told that they're less visual, and so they repress their responses to visual stimuli at a cognitive level. Whereas men are told that they're more visual, so that they respond you know, more strongly to visual stimulus. Now, there are, are certainly uh, differences, and, and if we had more time, I could t cite some other studies and interesting research, but it's a problem. We take a little bit of research, which a lot of it has to be filtered through social science, and we take a lot of anecdotal observation, and the end result is that we objectify women, we turn them into sex objects, and then vilify that sexuality. Uh, we tell women that if they expose parts of their bodies, that they are being unethical or immoral, and they're affecting the will and agency of men, that they're inviting rape, and, and, and we're emphasizing and vilifying their physicality. 
At the same time, we're telling men that they are weak-willed, sexually driven beings who can't exhibit willpower. And studies don't validate this. Studies do not validate the fact that visual stimulus can put men into some sort of uncontrollable state of sexual arousal. And that's the damage of this modesty culture narrative. It actually frustrates me a great deal because we tell women that their bodies are beautiful but dangerous, which tells them that women are primarily physical beings, that the rest of their attributes are subordinate to their physical appearance, and that their appearance taken too far is dangerous. And, uh, and we, we create this culture in which men pursue and conquer women in which our media portrays women primarily as sex objects. Now, the equality movement and feminism has created more equality, but primarily, frustratingly to me, the move has been to simply also objectify men. <laughs> we Photoshop men and make them topless and put them on magazine covers as well. A healthier approach is to look at the wholeness of a human being and understand that people's bodies are them and they are their bodies, but that's not the limit of them. And that humans have self-control. I realized this most powerfully when I went to one of my clients' uh, resorts with my family. And we went to a beach that had a lot of Europeans there. And a lot of the women were topless. And my Southern Baptist, Southeast conditioned brain expected that to be this shocking calamity. And instead, it was the biggest non-issue I've ever seen. Nobody cared. Nobody oogled. Nobody was titillated. Everybody just enjoyed their time on the beach. You see, the stories we tell ourselves about how we approach the world matter. And so when we tell girls that their belly buttons are dangerous or that their nipples are shocking, we create a culture that overemphasizes their bodies and underemphasizes their minds. And when we tell men and men tell themselves that they can't help but be titillated by visual imagery, we empower the distribution of really damaging pornography in our society, of, we empower rape culture, and we weaken the will of men. So, of course, you play ping pong at the beach because you're a heterosexual male and women are attractive to you. Today, a lot of women also play ping pong with their eyes at the beach as they watch attractive men walk by, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's how humans have found other humans to make humans with as long as there have been humans. But the danger comes when we start to vilify and fear that physicality or obsess over it. I say it's much more healthy to accept the fact that we as humans are, of course, attracted to other humans, but that every human is much more than a body. Every human is also a person who is trying to move through life to succeed and to do good and to look only at belly buttons and backsides fails to look at the whole person. Hi, Science Mike. My question is about the science of the afterlife, or more specifically, the science of being able to connect with those who've passed away through a medium. 
we've all seen reality shows or read books or articles about those who say they're able to connect with the, those who've passed away and even send messages back and forth between loved ones. And then, of course, there's 1 Samuel 28, where King Saul, frustrated with God's lack of response, goes to a medium and has the medium bring up the ghost of uh, the prophet Samuel to give him some advice. And even though Samuel's pretty kind of annoyed when this happens, he does show up and talk to him. So I have a, a close friend who's had personal experience with this type of thing, and it was very impactful for her. And I, I don't really want to write off her experience because it seems con- out of my realm of understanding. So um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on it, what the science is behind it, if and um, if you think that this type of view or this type of activity is compatible with being a follower of Jesus. Thank you. Well, let's start with the easy part. (laughs) Uh, Has science validated the claims of people who say they're mediums or that they can talk to the deceased or the dead? No, it has not. And it has tried. There have been challenges issued and controlled studies done on mediums. And we just absolutely no case of a medium outperforming chance in describing events or or knowledge ascribed to people who have passed. That's not surprising because science also has not validated that consciousness or life persists in any manner beyond physical death. When we talk about the afterlife today, we are not talking in the realm of science. We are firmly in the land of faith. And if you follow my work, you know that I appreciate faith. I'm a man of faith. But I also say that faith as used as a means for determining facts about physical reality tends to produce irresolvable conflicting claims. So faith is a personal matter. That means if you believe in an afterlife, uh, like most people do, I understand that belief. I even understand some of the cognitive basis for that belief. But you don't have an empirical belief, at least as far as I've seen. If, if you disagree, send me an email. I'd love to look at your research. And also, that's true of mediums. But And, and, and I actually spent more time than most questions researching this one uh, to make sure I hadn't missed anything. And I was unable to find any peer-reviewed study that validated the work of mediums. What I did find was that my hero, Andrew Newberg... <laughs> Uh, who is a a neuroscientist that studies religious phenomenon, uh, has done some brain tests on mediums. And this was research of his I hadn't seen. And frankly, I thought I'd seen his entire body of work since I am an Andrew Newberg superfan. But thanks to your question, I found a completely new study where he uh, brain scanned 10 mediums. And he did find something interesting because five were expert mediums and five were novice mediums, and the way that their brains behaved during a medium session was different. So expert mediums went into a trance that was similar to a meditative state, but without the the corresponding prefrontal cortex focus. Essentially, they gave away some of their agency, and in in exchange, gave a lot of energy to the parts of the brain associated with creativity. So they were in an unfocused creative trance. Uh, which makes it really easy to buy that mediums honestly believe they're talking to the dead because they would, in their own perception, potentially um, experience 
insights that seem to come from beyond their own consciousness. This frankly can be similar to the way that people like myself, who when we believe we hear from God, our brains probably look very similar. Uh, whereas the novice mediums uh, were, were concentrating quite, quite hard and uh, didn't show that same trance state or that same yielding to the creative centers of the brain. Now, Newberg was careful to point out that his tests neither proved nor disproved what mediums were up to any more than his tests prove or disprove the existence of God. They merely observe what happens in the brain during these moments. So, you can say that these creative centers are the mechanisms by which the deceased speak to us today through a medium, or you can say that it's simply allowing a person's creativity to be perceived as beyond their own consciousness. Uh, Our very empirical or scientifically minded folks are going to look at the, the previous data where we haven't seen any fact claims that can be verified from mediums, and they're going to say, I'm going to honor the null hypothesis. People who are more faith-oriented, of course, are going to say that our brains are acting as antennas for the immaterial realm. I'm going to let you decide. You're the listener. Uh, Now, I do want to say, what about the therapeutic action of talking to a medium and your friend who enjoyed her time? Well, I think talking to a medium could certainly be therapeutic because if you honestly believed you were speaking with one who's passed, it could provide closure and it could provide a safe environment with which to grieve. On the other hand, mediums could prey on your vulnerability and engage in some pretty predatory behavior, especially because they aren't regulated in the same manner that other mental health professionals are. So I think the safer bet, of course, is a licensed counselor or psychotherapist. Um, But I think if you've got friends or your guards up, you want to try medium, hey, it's okay with me. Now, the last part of your question is the most difficult. Is this behavior compatible with being a Christian? I think most Christians would say no, uh, even though there are a couple, and I I think literally a couple examples in the Bible of medium-like behavior, especially in the Old Testament. But I think this falls outside of the accepted practice of most of the church today. I mean, you know me. <laughs> I tend to, to hold people in, in a lot of grace and a lot of compassion. If you want to follow Jesus and mediums are important to you, I'm not going to knock that out of you or, or tell you you're wrong or evil or anything. I do think it's, it's further off the beaten path than even most of the things I say <laughs> for the church. So that's it. The science of mediums. Hi, Science Mike. My name is Zach. My question is about leadership in the church, and I guess in general. A lot of my story of being in a place where I'm questioning a lot of things in my faith starts with being disillusioned uh, because of a leader that I trusted, really two leaders that I trusted, who experienced some degree of moral failure, in my opinion. And nothing really extraordinary or extreme, just hurtful things and manipulative behavior, nothing newspaper worthy. But it was hurtful enough and shocking enough in my life and my wife's life that we really have come to question how, first we questioned how the church was organized around certain leaders with a lot of influence and power. 
And then it's led me personally to look at the idea system that a lot of our churches operate under. So I guess really what I'm wondering is, does science have something to say about leadership? And is there some critique that science can give to how a lot of churches that have been historically patriarchal, archical, I guess, and sometimes revolve around a single leader operate? Uh, Is there any insight there? Because I think that's something that I just continue to struggle with when I'm looking at coming back to a church community is being afraid of manipulation and influence from you know someone who has more power than I do in a social structure. Yeah, thanks. Uh, your podcast really helps a lot. Well, first I want to say I am sorry that you had a clergy person or some spiritual leader fail you in this way and that it affected you profoundly. And I also want you to know that this is unfortunately very, very common. And at least in my interpretation of the data I've seen, one of the leading causes that's turning people away from the church today is the abuse of spiritual authority uh, and even outright spiritual abuse. And it's it's awful. Well, let's talk about uh, what science has to say about it and see if there's any practical application. First of all, avoiding patriarchy and leadership is pretty easy. You can do what I do and go to a church with a female pastor. <laughs> it's just automatic. No more patriarchy. I hate to make generalizations, but I'm going to make one right now. Uh, I have found typically uh, women pastors to be a bit more empathetic, to be a bit more consensus-driven, and a little less power-seeking than your average male pastor. There are certainly exceptions both ways. In fact, there are probably more exceptions both ways than the baseline. As always, generalizations apply to people groups, but never to individual people. Uh, So that little quip aside, let's talk about what happens when people seek and then get power. The first thing is surprising. The best way to become powerful is to actually be nice. Uh, Humans reward kind behavior with increasing levels of power and responsibility. Science has shown that pretty clearly. Uh, However, once we get and accumulate power and that power is stabilized and no longer contingent on the approval of others, then it starts to change us. We act like people with brain damage. Specifically, we act like uh, someone who has damage or impairment in our orbitofrontal cortex. That's the part of your brain, which is in your prefrontal cortex, uh, right up in your forehead, uh, that helps you make ethical decisions or, or, or evaluate risk. And uh, when you uh, secure power, you become less empathetic, you become more impulsive, and you even start to look people in the eye less if you view them as having little or no power. And it's a really consistent phenomenon. Once people feel powerful, their behavior changes as does the way their brain processes information. Oh, yucky. And let's be honest, pastors get powerful. So do leaders in the church. We give them a lot of power because we connect their role with God, who we mentally project absolute power onto. So here's the thing. It's critical to balance power with accountability. Boards of directors, elder boards and churches, 
church structures, you know, um, many churches have central church authorities that have accountability for local leadership, although then they what? They have bishops or popes or whatever who have, again, high levels of power. And also, these accountability structures for power can turn into power structures themselves. And then that can foster authoritarianism. And once authoritarianism enters a religious institution, danger will Robinson because the good of the organization now supplants the good of its members. And that's how you get a church covering up child rape. It's authoritarianism and it's bad every time. So what's the answer? How do you find or create a spiritual community where the necessary, in many ways, power offered to our spiritual leadership does not become destructive and doesn't start short-circuiting people's brains. Transparency. More than anything, transparency creates accountability, especially financial transparency. When people have to answer for where the money goes and what the actions are done, and once they feel like their, frankly, actions are being monitored, They are more likely to maintain neurological niceness. With that transparency, it's important to create an environment that fosters open dialogue and honesty and mutual respect, and an environment where the prevailing dogma is always open to question and examination. Do those things, and you can minimize this tendency for spiritual authority to become spiritual power, authoritarianism, and abuse. I think those were some of the best questions this week that we've had in the history of the show. So thank you, everyone, who sent in such interesting and insightful questions. And if you haven't put a question in to Ask Science Mike yet, I need your help to keep the show going. You can use hashtag Ask Science Mike on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube, which almost no one does. Or you can go to AskScienceMike.com and put in a voice message or write out an email for me, and I'll read those. You can do anonymous questions that way as well. And you can also view full show notes with resources for every question on AskScienceMike.com. But uh, before you tune out and I go into the, the close of show spiel, I do want to tell you that we've got a lot of stuff coming up and events. Specifically, I've got events that if you happen to be in a given city, uh, you can come see me at. Uh, I'm going to be at Praxis in Houston in just a couple of weeks. If you go to PraxisConference.com, uh, you can get the full lineup. The liturgy is going to be there. Michael Gunger is going to be there. Sarah Bessie is going to be there. I'm a huge fan of hers, and I'm excited to hear uh, what she does at the conference. Uh, but just a huge cast of interesting people. My friend Stephen Proctor is going to be there. Aaron Nequist is going to be there. Um, so love to see you at Praxis. Uh, also, the Liturgist, uh, the group that I co-founded with Michael Gunger, is putting on an event called Belong around spiritual openness. If you go to theliturgist.com slash belong, there are a few seats left. Hopefully, there will still be seats by the time the podcast comes out. Um, I record this on Wednesdays. You hear it on Mondays. So you want to move quick because seats are moving fast. Uh, and then later in the summer, I'm going to be at the Wild Goose Festival. I'm really looking forward to that as well. They haven't announced the full speaker lineup yet, but I've seen some of the names on the docket, and it's going to be a great event. And of course, as always at Wild Goose, there'll be some really, really top-notch musical acts. So I'd love to see you at either Praxis, Belong, or Wild Goose, or heck, all three, if you just want to have a Science Mike summer. And I also want to let you know, um, Ask Science Mike is listener-supported to the tune of $1,500 a month. Wow. (laughs) 
that happened today, and I'm blown away by your generosity. And every single dollar helps. A lot of those dollars that make up that 1500 are small donations, $1 a month, $5 a month. And it helps. This keeps the show going. It helps pay for all the bills that I accumulate making the show and getting the show on iTunes and delivering all these bits over the internet. So it's incredibly helpful. And you can change or cancel pledge at any time. It's happened. I've seen people, they come in at one level, they realize it's too much, they ratchet that down to a number they're more comfortable with. Don't feel bad about that. I appreciate it. I've had a couple of people actually email me and apologize for reducing their donation. I'm grateful that you would send me any money at all. Come on. Thank you. And uh, listen, if money's tight or heck, even if you've already donated, one of the best things you can do to help the show is to rate the show on iTunes. Give us five stars if you really love the show. Most people do. Uh, also, if you actually write a review, that helps a lot, too. I read those reviews. They're incredibly encouraging. You can also tweet or post on Facebook any f- episodes you've really enjoyed. Uh, that also helps people find the show. Uh, our show is produced by the amazing Canadian Greg Nordine. Uh, his work is absolutely valuable. I honestly couldn't keep the show going without him. Um, so if you get a chance to send Greg some Twitter love, I'd appreciate it. Of course, our theme song is by Jeb, my BFF. And if you need original podcast music done, he can write theme songs and, and little turns and all the sounds you hear on this show. Jeb wrote and recorded and composed and sang and performed. What can I say? The guy's a ninja. That's it for this week, and I'll catch you guys next week. Ah!